Great. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, hopefully, you can hear me. I did some brilliant um, rotoring today. I scheduled myself to be both on sound and preaching, which is... Uh, <laughs> but thanks to Charlotte's looking, looking after everything. Um, so um, today, um, so sorry, I juiced myself. First of all, so my name's David. Um, I'm a member of the preaching team um, here at City Hope. Um, and today, what we're going to be doing is to continuing, as Paul has um, said, our series on Jonah. This is the third um, of four talks. And we're going to be looking at um, Jonah chapter three today. Um, I'm conscious that over the summer, many people, including myself, um, have been away. Um, so I'm just going to start briefly by recapping where we've got to so far in the story of Jonah. Um, so three weeks ago, Rebecca started off, and she was looking at chapter one. And at the start of chapter one, we saw God um, calling, commanding Jonah to go to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, and Assyria was one of the great nations of that time, but it was also a ruthless and violent one. So the Assyrians had destroyed much of um, the northern kingdom of Israel and ruled the southern kingdom of Judah for um, about 100 years. So to... Um, to Jonah and, and his people, Assyria were more than enemy. They were a brutal occupying force that had forever changed um, Israel's fortunes. So Jonah is called out by God to go and prophesy to this enemy, um, to this brutal occupying force, and call out their wrongdoing and tell them essentially they're going to be destroyed if they don't um, do something about it. Or he actually just says you're going to be destroyed. Um, now, perhaps unsurprisingly, Jonah wasn't too keen on the idea of going to Nineveh and spreading this message, um, so he ran away from God, which is a kind of pretty tricky thi thing to do, pretty irrational thing to do. Um, so Jonah came up with a brilliant plan. He essentially seemed to buy a ticket for a ferry, uh, or a boat, but you know, it'd be a ferry now, wouldn't it? So, um, so he gets on this boat and goes in completely the opposite direction um, from Nineveh. And Rebecca was showing us, I think, on, on some maps how, how far in the other direction he was trying to go. Um, and whilst on this boat in the Mediterranean, uh, God caused a terrible storm to come. And the ship's captain and crew, who were seasoned sailors, were completely terrified um, by the roughness of the sea. And they were trying to work out what was going on. And Jonah tells them that he's caused this. It's his fault. It's because he's running away from God. And the only way for them to get out of this storm is to throw Jonah overboard. The captain and crew think that seems a bit extreme. So they try a few things like trying to paddle back to shore. And nothing works. So eventually they do throw um, Jonah overboard. And as they do that, the sea just goes calm. The sea goes completely flat. Um, and Jonah then is therefore obviously in the middle of the sea, and this um, big fish, um, or whale as we sometimes hear referred to in the Bible as a fish, is sent by God to swallow Jonah up, and he finds himself stuck in the belly of a fish, and he's there for about three days uh, and three nights. And this takes us on to um, last week. So Philip talked last week about chapter two, and basically what happens in this chapter, the majority of this chapter, is Jonah's prayer of repentance. So He's calling out to God. He's in a dire situation. He's in the belly of, of a fish. And by the way, it is worth listening to the recording of last week just to hear Philip's sound effects of what it's like to be in the belly of a fish. If anyone was here last week, they'll uh, attest to that. Um, it's, it's like I was there. Um, and uh, it's, it's a dire place. And Jonah calls out um, in repentance. And it's kind of ironic, really, that Jonah tries all this effort to run away from God and then finds him again in this really peculiar place, sat in a fish's belly. And Philip talked about how um, Jonah had found his way into the fish's belly by his own actions, but that God is so merciful and compassionate that he could call on him and God could rescue him from that situation. And he talked about how that's the same for us as well. We can get ourselves into difficult situations, uh, but we know that we have a merciful and compassionate God. And chapter two ends with um, Jonah sort of saving from the fish. The fish, um, I think it says, vomits him up onto the beach, uh, which is a nice way to sort of end being in a fish's belly. So he gets vomited um, up onto the beach. And, and that basically brings us to today. 
And, and in many ways, while I was thinking about this, actually the bit we've covered so far is the bit that probably is the most famous bit of Jonah and the fish, or Jonah and the whale, as it's uh, traditionally called, um, of Jonah being in the belly and, uh, and, and escaping over time. And actually probably, and even I was kind of thinking about this, I wasn't exactly sure what happened next. I knew a bit, but I didn't know all the details. Um, and so I thought I'd um, entitle um, this talk, so I've been eaten by a fish, what next? And that's what we're going to be looking at today. We're looking at the what next, what happens after Jonah um, has escaped um, from this fish. Okay, so to start with, um, let's uh, read Jonah chapter 3 together, which is the bit we're going to be looking at today. So this is what it says. It says, uh, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim, it, uh, and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. And God responds, he says, When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. God relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. And so what we've read is really quite a brief chapter, actually. It's just about 10 verses. Um, but for me, in many ways, it's, um, it's way more incredible than what actually happened to Jonah in the first couple of chapters. Um, Jonah's kind of um, walked out of fish. Uh, presumably, he's had a shower, we hope, or something. You know, got a change of clothes. And then he gets called by God again. And that calling we saw right at the start of uh, chapter 3, that's essentially exactly the same language that <coughs> God used right at the start of the book of Jonah. He's calling him again to do exactly the same thing, to go to Nineveh and tell them... Uh, of their wrongdoing. And this time, uh, you know, Jonah responds to that second chance. He's learned his lesson, and he obeys God and treks off um, to Nineveh, which would have been quite a significant trek for him. He then spends three days wandering around Nineveh preaching. Um, I, it, it talks about it being a great city, and we'll talk about what it looked like later on, so it's partly because of its presence. Um, its population, it was a very large city for its time, about 120,000 people. Um, I looked at what 120,000 people would represent in this area, and it's about the size of um, the constituency of Bermondsey and Old Southwark. So Bermondsey, North Bermondsey, Rotherhithe, Borough, and through to uh, pretty much Waterloo. So a, a lot of people, um, all of which we hear, learn from that message, they repent, and even up to the king, and the king issues this amazing decree. He says, we need to fast, we need to wear sackcloth, we need to humble ourselves, we need to repent um, before God. That's how they respond um, to um, Jonah's message as he walks to the city over the course of um, three days. And for me, this is kind of the real miracle, if you like, of the story of Jonah. Um, sure, there was lots of God's mercy and compassion demonstrated through how Jonah was saved from the whale, um, but even more so in the saving of a whole city, and a city that was part of a nation that was ruthless, cruel, had been responsible for destroying so much of God's people. See, God had said death to the Ninevites, but he actually brought them to life out of that situation. He completely transformed um, the situation they were in through that message of, uh, that Jonah brought. So why did this happen? 
Um, how did this sort of slightly disobedient, reluctant prophet turn around a whole city? And this is one of the most r- miraculous and largest scale um, kind of repentances that we see in the entirety of the Bible, this turning around of a city of 120,000 in three days. Why did this happen? Uh, well, I think that Jonah's experiences that we've read about, and I, and I sort of summarized briefly at the start, prepared him for this mission to the Ninevites. So Jonah had been through some really tough times. Through his own disobedience, he'd ended up in storms. He'd been chucked out of a boat in the belly of a whale, vomited out on the beach. He'd been through some really tough times. But those led tough times, I think, led to him being a really impactful missionary when he went to go and see um, the Ninevites. And I've read a number of commentaries, as you'd probably hope if I was about to preach on this passage, um, over the past few weeks on Jonah. And a number of those kind of take the angle that Jonah's lack of obedience initially meant that he wasn't as effective as he could have been. Um, that if he'd gone, if he'd responded the first time, he actually could think what else he could have achieved, think how much more he could have achieved. But the more actually I've read and thought about this passage, the more I tend to disagree with that perspective. I think that what happened to Jonah was all parts of God's plan. You know, God, God, know, God knew that Jonah was going to run away. We're naive if we think um, anything else. He, he, he knew that was going to happen. But he also knew that his experience as he ran away and, and the journey he went through would make his ministry much more effective once he got to um, Nineveh. And I also think um, that this can apply to us today. Uh, not that we should all go and try and get swallowed by a fish. That's probably not a good um, outcome from this. But um, that the life experiences we go through, whether they be good, but perhaps more importantly, the challenging life experiences can make us much more effective uh, witnesses of God's mercy and grace if we learn from them and use them in the right way. So what we're going to do today is to look at this in a bit more detail. We're going to look at some of the elements of Jonah's experience that made his message so impactful and how these might apply to us. Wouldn't it be great to see our area transformed in the same way that Nineveh was in that miraculous uh, way? Okay, so to start with, what we're going to look at, the first thing we're going to look at in terms of Jonah's experience was um, how it gave him a realization, a deeper realization of God's salvation and the extent of God's mercy and grace. So let's step back a bit. The central thread of the Bible is the gospel message. And that message is that we have all sinned, we've all turned away from God, but Jesus died for us on the cross and came back to life so that those who believe in him will be forgiven and have eternal life with him in heaven. Amen? That's the great news, that's the, g- that's the good news, the great news of the Bible, it's the amazing news of the Bible. And that's a promise to each and every one of us in this room. But sometimes I think it'd be easy for us to forget its importance and power. We can get caught up in doing our lives and running our lives and in work and family and the mundanity of things, and we can push the importance of that message um, as Christians to the back of our minds. Uh, John talked about this when, uh, when he came out. He, t- he was talking about how we can, uh, lose, um, w- we can lose the knowledge of how rich we are um, as Christians, what um, we have from God. And I think when we do that, it makes us less effective witnesses. And I think this is probably what happened to Jonah as well. Uh, we often think that Jonah ran the other way from Nineveh because he was afraid. That was kind of the pretext I gave at the start, that he was afraid of this great, cruel, ruling empire, and therefore went the other way. But um, actually, it became apparent in chapter 4, and Rebecca talked about this um, three weeks ago as well, that as you look at it in more detail, um, it would seem that actually it's more about Jonah's feeling of hostility towards the Ninevites than his fear of them. So it's almost like he didn't think they deserved salvation. He didn't think they deserved to be warned about their destruction, and therefore have any chance of coming back for it. He'd lost some of the salvation message that we were all sinners. And, and so Jonah... And through Jonah's experience and what happened next, he got 
a sort of a fresh awakening of that salvation message, if you like. So um, he disobeyed God. He ended up in this terrible situation in the belly of the, belly of the fish. He would have realized that he was a sinner too, and he wasn't better than the Ninevites. You know, that, that, that view he had of the Ninevites was wrong, and he needed to come back from that. And we see this realization in chapter 2 when um, Jonah is calling out to God. Um, and at the very end of his prayer, he says, salvation comes from the Lord. He's got it. That's the gospel, right? His salvation comes from the Lord. Salvation is from and of the Lord, and no one else will stop. And it says this in Acts 4, verse 12. So let's have a look at this. It says, salvation is found in no one else. So it's only found in Jesus. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. So Jonah realized it wasn't for him to cast his judgment and opinions over the top of what of God's calling. As a prophet, Jonah always would have known this. He always would have known um, what salvation meant. That was kind of his job as a prophet, if you like. Um, but he'd forgotten it. It had gone to the back of his mind. And actually his um, experiences meant that he realized the enormity of God's salvation and that it was for everyone. And perhaps for us, there's times where we think that too. You know, sometimes we think of people who, you know, I can't believe those people would ever be saved. They, you know, it's those kind of things. And that's almost kind of Jonah's kind of perspective here as well. And we need to remember God's salvation, how powerful it was and, and is. So having realized then the extent of his brokenness, uh, Jonah then also gained a much deeper understanding of God's mercy and grace. This is this, the second bit of this bullet. And um, Philip talked about this um, quite a lot last week. I don't plan to go, that, go through this in loads of detail. But essentially what Jonah learned from being from saved from being in that fish's belly was whatever you've done, however dire the situation, however much you've turned your back on God, his abundant mercy and grace can rescue you. And if you're sat here today and you're going, I don't really know what that means, I don't know what it's like to experience that, I would encourage you to find out more, to talk to someone you've come with, one of the church leaders, myself, um, after service, to understand more of God's abundant mercy and grace and how it can save you from any um, situation. So for us as Christians, just to r- recap on this, um, to be for those of us who are Christians, to be effective witnesses, we need to make sure that we don't have some kind of misplaced self-righteousness and pride that we remember we are all sinners and have been saved by God's mercy and grace. Uh, and there's no one who doesn't have access to God's salvation or is beyond the scope of his mercy and grace. So that's the first thing that I think Jonah learnt um, from his um, experience of being in um, the belly of a whale and everything that led up to that. Um, the second one that I think is uh, pretty important is the understanding of his dependence on God. So Jonah would have got this now. He could not have survived being in a fish's belly without being fully dependent on God, without trusting in him for the outcome of being vomited on a beach, if you like. And this was great preparation for him for what he was about to go through. So this is um, from the start, this is verse 2 of chapter 3, and it says, Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim it to the message I give you. This is the call that God gave to Jonah um, the second time around, right at the start of this chapter. So God tells Jonah to go, and he tells him, what's, uh, he tells him that he'll, I'll tell you what to say when you get there. So he needs to be dependent on God because he's going. He doesn't know what's going to happen when he gets there. He knows that God has a plan. That will be a great plan because it's God's plan, but it's often the way God's only going to reveal to him in chunks. And I think if you think about Jonah's situation, he really needed that dependence and trust for what he was about to go through. He was about to go on this long trek to Nineveh. He was a rural man from rural Palestine, and he would have, uh, towards the end of that trek, started to see the great city of Nineveh in the horizon. And we know quite a lot about Nineveh from historical accounts and from archaeology and things, and we know it was a, it was a, it was a huge city. 
So it had um, aqueducts and canals, it had great historical gardens, it had um, huge libraries. They've discovered um, 16,000 volumes in archaeological digs from those libraries. It was a great city. On top of that, it was surrounded by a huge wall. That wall was 10 stories high. Um, and it was wide enough to drive three chariots on top. So it was surrounded by this huge wall, and there were 1,500 towers around this wall, and each of those were 20 stories high. Kind of like being in Canterbury, maybe. Um, but um, there were a lot of towers around. Uh, and it, so he would have seen this huge, imposing city that he was going to go, oh, by the way, you're going to be destroyed. Um, and he knew that was the central message. So he needed to know um, dependence on God. and Because he would have seen this city which seemed very successful and like they had everything that they need. How was he going to speak to them? Why would they take notice? But Jonah knew that he was responding to this call and that God would give him the message for the people when he got there. And it was God's words that Jonah needed to speak, not his own. He wasn't going in his own strength. Jonah did not need to be afraid or intimidated because when we obey God, he speaks through us um, and his word. Um, I, I was going um, to look at another passage around this, which is Matthew 28. Matthew 28 is the Great Commission. It's when Jesus sends out the disciples to all the world to go and tell them uh, the message of Jesus. Um, and um, that applies to us. That's our Great Commission as well. Um, and actually, in many ways, Jonah was one of the first foreign missionaries. He's one of the first, if you go through the history of the Bible, he's one of the first people to go out and take um, a message um, from God to another nation. And so a, f- a few hundred years later, this is what Jesus said as he um, widened that remit to all of us to go to all the nations. He said this, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Go and speak to the nations. I am with you always. You can depend on me. You need me. You need to depend on me. So that dependence on, on God was a really important thing um, for Jonah to understand as he went out uh, to Nineveh. And boy, did it get results right. What happened in Nineveh, the text says the people listened to Jonah's sermon and believed God. We heard the king's decree, uh, the acts of humility, the fasting that he asked the whole city um, to undertake. They heard God speaking through this reluctant prophet as a result of him uh, being dependent on God and speaking God's words to them. Okay, so that's the first two um, things that Jonah learned. And in many ways, these are kind of quite, um, these experiences would apply in lots of general situations, in a general sort of missionary situations. So um, these are really important things to do and to understand whoever and wherever you're sharing the gospel. It's important to know the. Um, what God's salvation is, to understand the depth of it and the extent of his mercy and grace. It's, uh, it's important to understand your dependence on God. But actually, I think there were some very specific things in Jonah's experience that he'd been through in the first couple of chapters, which meant that he was very specifically prepared to have effective ministry at that time and in that place in Nineveh. So some really specific things. Um, God prepared him for that moment. And to explain this, I'm just going to give um, a little bit of context around um, the city of Nineveh at the time. And you can see um, from this where I'm seeing some of these links. Um, So um, Nineveh was located in northern Iraq, um, near now where um, Mosul is located, on the banks of the Tigris River. And um, the name Nineveh is thought to um, derive from the ancient Akkadian and to mean the place of the fish. You're seeing my first link. So the actual name of the city was the place of the fish. And, And the people worshipped several gods, and most of those were kind of fish-related. Um, so they worshipped the fish goddess Nanshi, and they also um, worshipped this fish god called Dagon, and he was like half man, half fish. And there was this big statue in Nineveh with like a man's body and a fish's head on top. 
On top of that, Nineveh was actually at a really tricky point in its history. Um, they'd recently suffered a couple of big plagues. Their population had been d- decimated by um, quite a few thousands. And they were also facing quite a number of threats on all their borders. So there were four nations around Nineveh, including the Babylonians, who were all rising in power at this time. And actually the Assyrians were quite vulnerable um, from potential war on four fronts, which would have been very hard for them to um, have, have coped with. And in my mind, I don't think these links were an accident. I kind of have this picture of Jonah going around the city of Nineveh, sort of getting into the big gates, and sort of walk, wandering around to like this statue of a half-man, half-fish, and some, and some temple to some fish goddess, and thinking, hang on a sec, I wonder if what happened to me with that big fish a few months ago might be relevant here. And actually, you know, sharing some of that experience and how what he'd gone through and how God had saved him and how he had had mercy on him and how he could do the same for him. I think these specifics of Jonah's experience and what he'd learnt in very tricky times made his message much more effective to the, to the Ninevites at this time. And I think Jesus echoed this in something that he said about Jonah in Matthew 12. Um, so um, in this passage, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. So the Pharisees are the religious leaders at the time. They didn't particularly like Jesus, and they tried to challenge him and trick him quite a lot. And in this um, instance, what they're trying to do is to say, can you um, give us a sign? Can you, um, can you show us that you are God and who you claim to be, essentially? And he answers them. He says, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but, no, but none will be given it, it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. There's quite a lot in this, but the bit I want to focus on is Jesus saying that Jonah is a sign to the Ninevites. And uh, to me, that's kind of sort of supporting what I'm saying around. Actually, I think he was a, Jonah was a very specific sign to those people at that time. And some have gone as far as to say that they actually think Jonah would have been quite a physical sign, that if you've been in the belly of a fish for, for a few days, uh, not that that's uh, a particular thing to find an example of, but if you have, it's quite likely your skin will be quite bleached by the stomach acid. Perhaps he's, he would have lost all his hair. Maybe his clothes were all, you know, torn apart, although you'd hope he would have got changed, but you never know. But, but actually, there's lots of things about his appearance that could have made him a physical sign, as well as his story, very specifically talking to the Ninevites at that point. So um, essentially what I'm saying here is, is Jonah's specific ex- experience meant he was particularly effective at preaching to the Ninevites. And I think that applies to us too, that sometimes God puts us in very specific circumstances so we can talk from these experiences. Now, I'm not saying this will always be the case, that you can only talk to people about the gospel if you have some kind of experience in common, because um, the gospel message is for all people. But I think we need to be open and alert to the possibility that our specific experiences may well be used by God to make our witness more, more effective in certain circumstances. And this is kind of the nub I was getting to with my title of, so I've been eaten by a fish, what next? You know, y- If you've been through difficult times, the what next bit is we need to be ready and open to share our experiences where necessary, although that Obviously, you have to be careful that we don't overshare. I don't mean every time you see someone, tell them all the problems you've ever had in your life and hope that one strikes a chord. That's not what I mean. I more mean that, you know, that we need to be ready to share those and God will lead us and call us at the right time to share those um, in the right way. And I think we hear quite a few um, specific examples of this um, at our church. We hear it on a Sunday. We heard some this morning. I think you know, Pete was talking about um, how he'd um, shared at Lee and Anne-Marie's wedding yesterday and pulled on some very specific experience that he had and how it related to that audience. Um, and we heard about earthquakes and very specific experiences saying that there's lots of testimonies in this church where that has happened, and we hear those um, quite a lot of the time. 
And I wanted to give a specific example um, from our family um, as well, where I think this, is, this has been the case. So um, a few weeks ago, we had a family Thanksgiving service, and myself and my wife Rachel uh, were giving thanks for um, Jacob and Daniel, um, who's our um, one-year-old, our youngest. Um, and as we mentioned a few weeks ago, um, Daniel had quite a tricky start to life in some ways. He, so he was born two months early. He spent several weeks in special baby care at St. Thomas's. And that experience was clearly quite tough, uh, but it also gave us lots of opportunities to talk to people um, in similar circumstances. And one incident in particular stood out to me, and it was actually quite a number of months afterwards, and it was on Marathon Sunday. Uh, we live up in um, Rotherhithe, just sort of off Salter Road. And um, we'd um, gone up to see um, the marathon uh, just by where our house is on Salter Road. And Rachel kept catching the eye of someone that she thought looked um, quite familiar. And it turned out to be someone Rachel had known um, from school as a teenager, but not seen since. So even though Rachel looks the same as when she was a teenager, obviously, uh, they didn't quite recognize each other. Um, but, but this lady had traveled in from outside town, and she was watching a friend in the marathon, and she'd sort of randomly chosen this spot, because then you can kind of get to the tube and go and see the end as well, sort of further in into the city. Um, so there was this lady right outside our house, not seen Rachel for 10 or 15 years, and she was very pregnant. And they started to talk, and it turned out um, that she was going to be induced um, early that night, um, having had loads of complications in her um, pregnancy. And, and to be honest, she wasn't at all focused on the marathon. All she was thinking about was the situation. She was really fearful about the whole thing and what was going to happen. And it was really amazing for Rachel to be able to share her experience with Daniel in her arms of what happened to her a few months earlier and just really provide some comfort and compassion to that lady at that time. And that's the kind of thing I'm talking about when I'm saying I think there's specific circumstances that sometimes God wants us to use in particular situations. And we need to be ready to share them. We have an all-powerful God. We should expect these opportunities to, to um, come forwards. Okay, so let's um, summarize um, then what we've heard today. Where am I? So, um, we all go through experience in life, um, and good and bad and challenging, um, ups and downs, the booms and busts of life. Uh, we all get eaten by fish, sort of, metaphorically, um, and it's what we do with these, I'm saying, and what happens next, I think, is um, important. So let's be like Jonah. Let's respond to God's call and use what we've learned from those experiences to be more effective witnesses in our city. Um, so sometimes that will be from our experience of God's salvation, uh, from rescuing us from dark, pl dark places, our experiences of his abounding mercy and grace. But other times, be prepared to share really specific experiences, and experiences to respond to particular opportunities um, that God gives us. I, I kind of just want to conclude by uh, earlier in the week, when I think I was sort of supposed to be finishing the sermon off, I was watching a film. Um, I'm, not, I'm not that into films, so I tend to only watch them once they come out on Freeview because I never pay to watch a film because I'm a bit tight. Um, but uh, I, I was watching um, a film called Unbroken, which I think is a few years old. It was um, Angelina Jolie. Um, I think it was one of the first times she directed. Um, and it was about someone called Louis Zamperini. Now, Louis Zamperini, it's a true story. Um, he um, competed in the 1936 Olympics. He was a 5,000-meter um, runner. He finished eighth, but actually set a record for like the fastest last lap. And basically, was looking forward to going to the next Olympics and learning from his mistakes and, and hopefully winning a medal. World War II happened. He didn't get that opportunity. And in 1941, he joined the US Air Force. Um, he was the crew of a bomber um, in the Pacific. On May 1943, he was on a search and rescue mission in a plane um, over the Pacific and had mechanical failures and crashed basically in the middle of the ocean. Only three of the 11 crews survived that. He was one of the three. Um, and they spent um, 47 days. Actually, one of them died after three days. But um, the two that 
survived, spent 47 days adrift. They lived off rainwater. They caught albatrosses that landed on their rafts because they were in the middle of the ocean. They only sort of land for miles, so they would catch an albatross. They caught fish using the bits of the albatross as bait, and they lived in that way, not a great life, but they sort of just barely survived for 47 days. They were attacked by enemy aircraft. They survived storms, and um, they also survived shark attacks. Sharks followed them for a number of days. Uh, kind of like a bit of a Jonah moment in a way. Um, in the film, and this, this, is, this is true to the story as well, Louis called out partway through that, and I think he prayed quite, prayed quite a lot through that time, and said, if you rescue me from this, I will, I will devote my life to serving you. Um, after 47 days, and there's this bit in the film where they're sort of lying in a raft, and they got to the end of 47 days, and Louis's next to his colleague, Philip, I think, and he says, I've got good news and I've got bad news. Uh, and the good news was there, were being, there was a big ship in front of them. The bad news was it was a Japanese ship, and they were taken as prisoners of war, this is in the middle of 1943, and they were, were held by the Japanese in very harsh circumstances until 1945, when the war ended, and he was returned to his family. He thought he was dead. They had a letter from President Roosevelt to say, uh, your son's presumed dead, and they'd had that uh, about a year earlier. Now, the, the film only tells the first two chapters. It only tells Jonah 1 and 2. It only tells the bit of him being eaten by a fish. You know, what's the what next bit? Now, as often happens in these films, it had a, a series of sort of things at the end where it showed pictures of the actual people and the quote. And it said this. It said, After years of severe post-traumatic stress, Louis made good on his promise to serve God, a decision he credited with saving his life. So I um, thought, that's interesting, given what I'm preparing for this weekend. I'm going to dig into that a bit more. And... He actually spent the rest of his life as an evangelist. In 1950, he joined Billy Graham, um, and, and he served as an evangelist until three years ago when he died at the age of 97. So he's only just died, and he actually had a lot of input into the film. And Zamperini, throughout his, his time as an evangelist, uses his experience of God's salvation on that raft to speak to people. But he also used his very specific experiences. He would talk an awful lot about forgiveness and how he'd forgiven uh, the guards who'd mistreated him in Japanese prisoner war camps. And he even went and, and talked to most of the um, Japanese guards who'd been with him in those prisoner war camps to tell him that he had been, to tell them that he had forgiven them. And many of them actually became Christians as a result. So he used both that general experience, and, and clearly he has an amazing testimony. I'm, you know, we're not all going to be lost in a rough 47 days. But he used his amazing experience both to talk about salvation in general from a really heartfelt place, but also to use those specific experiences that he'd had in the Japanese prisoner war camp to talk about forgiveness and how that can impact. What an amazing story. Um, let's um, reflect on those things and let's reflect on what they mean for us um, as we think about um, our impact on our area. Amen.